If you have your Bible, I want to invite you and encourage you to open it to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 38. We're going to pick up where Pastor Kyle left off last week. And so as you make your way there, I just want to share last week, Pastor Kyle, he delivered a a sermon on confession. And in that sermon, he he made a statement that I thought was amazing. He he made the statement. He said, you know, confession is not about what people think about you because you already have your identity in Christ. Amen. When I say amen, that's your I know this is my first time. But when I say amen, that's your first time to say amen back. Amen. Amen. So I want to bring a Bell family confession to you this morning. All right. We're going to we're going to open with a little honesty today. Is that fine? So I'm bringing a little Bell family confession. This is a family confession. So here we go. You ready? You ready, Katie? We love Bluebell. There, I said it. I said it. All right. We love Bluebell ice cream. Anybody love Bluebell ice cream in here? Yeah, it's almost kind of like a prerequisite to live in Brenham, right? <laughs> we love it. But we might love Bluebell into like an unhealthy way. Uh, uh, so, for example, let me give you kind of a, a couple of ways that we love Bluebell as a family. Every single one of our children, when they turned one years old, we took them to the Bluebell Creamery. Because my mom and dad live here, so we'd visit mom and dad. We'd take them to the Bluebell Creamery for their very first taste of Bluebell. Just to go ahead and indoctrinate them into that Bluebell culture. When Katie and I were in California, I was serving in the Marine Corps in California at the time, and California didn't sell Bluebell where we were. And so my dad and my father-in-law would literally get igloos uh, uh, that had wheels, and they would put half gallons of Bluebell on dry ice, and they would bring them on the plane, kind of like carry-on luggage, to us in California. In fact, when we drove here, uh, so when we moved here, we drove 18 hours to get here, and in one day, and that next morning when we all got up, we took all of the children at 10 a.m. for a brunch at Bluebell, which is not the smartest thing to do. I recommend not giving your kids sugar at 10 o'clock in the morning. It makes for a long day. When Katie and, uh, found out that, that Pastor, uh, Pastor Kyle and the, El- the advisory team here, they were, they were talking to us about coming, she's like, all right, Jeremy, you've got to move me within a tenth of a mile of Bluebell. I'm just kidding. She didn't say that. <laughs> We're serious, but not that serious. But by God's grace, he did move us within walking distance of Bluebell. Amen. So why do I tell that to you? Why do I share that? Because the reality is that our love for something causes a stirring within us to respond in love, right? So because we love Bluebell as a family, we we love it in a way that we do things. We commit ourselves to it. Nobody has to come to us and say, I need you really to commit yourself to Bluebell. So every Friday, you got to get up and you got to go eat Bluebell. After. Nobody tells us to do that. It is naturally out of our love for this Bluebell creamery that we go and eat Bluebell ice cream, right? Here's my question, though. Do we love Jesus more than we love Bluebell? We should love Jesus so exponentially more that it it stirs within us a cause and a reason to commit ourselves to him. You see, if you if you don't hear this this morning, if you if you miss the prerequisite to my sermon, then you're going to think that I'm preaching legalism and moralism, which I am totally against. Because the gospel is clear. The gospel is that Jesus loves you, and when you put your faith in his work, then naturally what flows out of you is love, and out of that love flows a commitment to him. 
So look, for example, in verse 38, so I can show you, because we're going to talk about the commitment that the people make. So here, here's the only thing I want you to take away from my sermon this morning is this. When God calls you to himself in Jesus, you commit yourself to Christ. When God calls you to himself through Jesus, you commit your life to Christ. And that's what the people are doing here. They are, they are making a commitment to the Lord. Look at beginning of verse 38. So after they have just gone through this series of confession, look what they say. Because of all this. Well, what are they talking about here? What is the because of all this? Well, let's recall back to last week's sermon. Remember that the people in this moment of confession, they are thinking about two aspects of God. They're thinking about who he is and what he's done. For example, in verse 5 of Nehemiah chapter 9, the people stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. They, they are talking about who God is. And then they talk about what God has done. Verse 7, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name of Abram, Abraham. At the end of verse 17, they again come back to who God is. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth. Verse 30, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit. Here's your work, God, through your prophets. Verse 31, nevertheless. In your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And the people respond to who God is and what he's done. And they say, because of this, because of who you are, God, because of your work, the work that we've seen you do and bringing Ezra and Nehemiah and the building of the wall and bringing your people out of exile back to Jerusalem. They say, because of all this, look what they say. We make a firm covenant in writing. Because of all this, God, we commit ourselves to you. Is this not what Jesus teaches us in the New Testament? John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. But see, we as the church, and I've heard sermon after sermon where, where that gets flipped over and over again, doesn't it? It, it goes like this, the, the moralistic teaching sometimes that we hear in our churches and in our pulpits. It says something like, okay, well, the more you obey God's commands, then the more he'll love you. And I say, show me that in scripture. Because that is totally antithetical to the gospel. You say, well, how is that antithetical to the gospel? Jesus says, if you love me, now you obey me. So why would you love Jesus this morning? If you miss the gospel, then you're not going to get the commitment. You're going to think legalism. So why do we love Jesus? Well, because he loved us. Listen, I don't know where you are in your life right now, but here's what I want you to hear clearly this morning. There is a God in heaven. He is real. He is alive. And listen, he loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for your sins and my sins. He loves you so much that the Bible teaches that yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much God loves you. And when you respond to that love in faith, you're saying, oh my goodness, I see how beautiful and glorious and majestic God is. And I see how beautiful and glorious and majestic God's work is in Christ for me. And therefore, because of his love, I love him. 
And because I love him, I want to live for him and him alone. Amen. That was your opportunity. Amen. That's why they say in verse 38, because of all this. Then look what they say. We make a firm covenant. See it right there? Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Now, I don't mind the words firm covenant there. I think that's a, I think that's a completely appropriate translation to the, to the writing here in the original language. But I like to use the uh, translate it as binding agreement. They make a, a binding agreement. We could talk about this later, but I like to reserve covenant language for God. And the reason is because when God makes a promise, he always keeps it. But human beings are notorious for making promises and breaking them. You'll see this in Nehemiah chapter 13. It doesn't last long. And so I like to use the word binding agreement. So in my sermon this morning, I'm going to I'm going to take that binding agreement and synonymously, I'm going to use the word commitment. So we see how they are going to commit themselves to God based off of who God is and what God has done. And so they make a commitment, a firm covenant, a binding agreement in writing. And it says on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites and our priests. And in chapter 10, starting in verse one, all the way down to verse 27, they talk about all the names that signed this agreement. So here's what I want to show you this morning. As followers of Jesus, we must commit ourselves to Christ. And in this text, we see three areas that we commit ourselves to Christ in. Now, these are just three. There's more. The Bible has plenty more of commitments for us to look like Jesus. But in this text, we are only going to look at three of them. And I'm going to put it into the plural of all of us. So, number one, here's the first way we commit ourselves to Jesus as Christians today. Love God, obey his commandments. It is this. Are you ready? We commit ourselves to live in the world, but not of the world. We commit ourselves to live in the world, but not of the world. Check out verse 28 with me. This is where we get this idea here. 28, it says the the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have, look at the words, separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into. Okay, so we see them saying here that we're going to make a commitment. We're going to live in the world, but now we're going to be, we're not going to be of the world. We're going to separate ourselves from the peoples. How specifically do they separate themselves from the peoples? Look what it says. Because they are going to begin to understand and follow and know the law of God. Look at verse 29. It says, so we are going to enter into a curse and an oath. To walk in God's law. Specifically, what are they talking about? It says right here, the law that was given by Moses. So we're thinking the first five books of the New Testament or the Old Testament, the servant of God. And look what they say again, they're committing themselves to, to live in but not of. It says, and to observe and do, so observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. So here's what they're saying. Because of all this, because of who God is and what he's done, we're, we're going to live in the world, but we're going to live the way that God tells us to live in the world. In other words, we're going to do it his way, not our way, because it was their way that got him in this mess to begin with. Right. Which is typically what sin does. And so they say we're going to commit ourselves. And then more specifically, look what they say in verse 30. 
to continue with this idea. It says, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So they immediately tie it to marriage as well. Now, they are not, they're not keeping their daughters and their sons from the people of the land on racial grounds. They are keeping them separate on religious grounds. So what Paul would talk about this in the marriage of believers in 1 Corinthians 7 and 2 Corinthians 6. Where he says, you as believers don't need to be unequally yoked. Because the problem is, is that when you bring two people together from differing worldviews, one of three things will happen. Either, number one, there's going to be a lot of tension and fighting because one's going to try to live committed to Christ, the other's not going to live committed to Christ. Or number two, there's going to have to be some give and take, so the Christian's going to have to give a little bit. Or number three, the unbeliever will just pull the, pull the believer away completely. That's why Paul tells us to be careful. Now, this is different. Listen, if you're here and you were married as unbelievers and God saved you, that's a totally different scenario. But as parents, we need to think about that as we... Raise our children, right? I tell my kids all the time. I said, I love that you want to get married. But here's the only thing I ask. You find somebody who's going to marry you that loves Jesus more than they'll ever love you. I'm sorry, not my kids, our kids. Katie gets really mad at me when I say my kids. They're only my kids when they're in trouble. So they're saying we're committing ourselves to live in the world, but not of the world. Can I give it just to you in an illustration, please? Thank you. J.D., my pastor in North Carolina, he brought this out one time, and I thought, wow, what a powerful illustration. So let's take, let's take the idea of money for a moment. So we have to deal with money in today's world, don't we? We have to deal with currency. Like, we can't, we can't be, so if you're an office fan, like, we can't create shroot bucks and walk around and pay for our coffees with shroot bucks. Pastor Kyle can't say, all right, today we're not going to be in the world anymore. We're going to we're going to have Kyle currency. And so everybody, you can use Kyle currency to pay for your mortgages. The reality. Yeah. (laughs) The reality is that we have to use money in the world, don't we? The difference between us and the world is that while we have to use money, we look at money a lot differently than they do. So here's the reality for for a Christian. If a Christian makes the same amount as an unbeliever, typically a Christian is living three times under the non-believer. We're living three times below our income. Why is that? Well, for three very scripturally given principles. Number one, we're commanded to tithe. We give. So number one, we're generous people. So we give our monies away. Number two, we save. It's a good other principle. Save your money. Very biblical idea to to save. And so that's number three step behind. And number three, we don't overextend ourselves in debt. Now, I'm not saying that worldly people can't live under good principles of Scripture, but I'm saying that they look at money very differently than we look at money. And so a Christian is automatically going to be three steps behind a non-believer who probably makes the same amount of money. That's what it's talking about when we say we commit ourselves to live in the world. We have to deal with the world, but... We commit ourselves to not be of the world, that we're going to we're going to view money differently. We're going to view marriage differently. We're going to view parenting differently. We're going to view sex and sexuality differently. We're going to view end of life and beginning of life differently. Why? Well, not being of the world means that we're going to fall under the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. So we're going to look different than the world does. But I think that is a beautiful thing. 
You see, when we show the world that we live differently as Christians, the world actually notices. Do you know that? The world notices when you don't look like them. See, there's there's two warnings here that I want us to I want us to contemplate for a moment. See, there's some Christian communities out there. They'll see that word separated themselves and they'll be like, all right, we need to totally detach from culture. We're going to we're going to create our own little Christian communities and we're going to just live the way that God calls us to live. We're not going to worry about the world. Well, well, Rob Dreyer actually wrote a book called The Benedict Option. And that was one of the biggest criticisms. Even the criticism I had against his book is that he tried to create this Christian community without thinking evangelistically. Jesus says, I've called you out of the world. The gospel says, I've called you out of your sin. I've called you out of your selfishness and out of your idolatry just to call you right back in. So you, my disciples, as Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, so you'll be my witnesses throughout Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Amen. Yes, I got a few of you in here still with me. To the ends of the earth. So we don't isolate ourselves, but at the same time, there's churches that are going to try to go the other way. They want to syncretize themselves with the culture. I think when I use the word syncretize, think of the word synchronized swimming, where all people in the pool are doing the same thing. But here's the problem with that. When you look like the, the culture, you have no aroma of Christ. Let me say that again. When you look like the culture, you have no aroma of Christ. So the culture doesn't find you tasteful. And they don't find Jesus desirable. So we have to be a a good balance in between the two. And here's the beauty for living for Jesus. People will notice. The world will notice. And the world should come and ask you. Hey, why do you do this with your money? Hey, why do you do this with your with your time? Or hey, why do you do this with the way that you work? You, You work like you're working for somebody else. But why do you do this with your house? And why do you spend your time being hospitable to people who maybe you don't like or they don't like you? Like, why do you forgive so quickly? And why do you keep your mouth shut when you want to gossip? Like, why do you why do you not act like me? Do you know what they're really saying to you? Let me give you a little insight into the heart of a person who asked that question. You want to you want to know what they're really saying to you? They're saying this. Are you ready? Will you tell me about Jesus? Will you tell me about the Christ that has changed your your life? Because I see what he's doing in you and I want to know that. I, there's, I want to know him. That's what it means to commit ourselves to be in the world, but not of the world. So let me ask you a question this morning. When's the last time somebody came up to you and said, why do you act the way that you do? Why do you live the way that you do? Does your life reflect Christ in such a way that people notice? And if not, maybe this is an opportunity for God to open your heart and say, who are you truly committed to? Number two, verse 31, it says that we commit ourselves to prioritize corporate worship. We commit ourselves to prioritize corporate worship. Look at verse 31 It's beautiful. They say, If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, they say we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. What are they saying here? Well, notice two times in this passage. What does it say? 
Two times you see the word we. This is a collective, a, a, a corporate commitment. They say, if the peoples of the land bring it to us, look what they say. We will not buy from them. As a community on the Sabbath day, we're not going to buy from the people who bring stuff to sell to us. Number two, it says not only that, it says we're going to also forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every day. We're going to we're going to do this as a day. Sabbath was a day where we come together for worship and rest. Now, let me I don't have time to dissect a whole theology of the Sabbath for you. There's about four different views, if not a million different views. I think four are decent. There's particularly one that I admire and I don't have time to dissect that. So let me kind of just give you a very quick highlight of Sabbath. Most people don't realize this as Christians, but did you know that the Ten Commandments is actually explained twice in the Bible in the Old Testament? We see the Ten Commandments listed in Exodus 20, and we see the Ten Commandments listed in Deuteronomy 5. But very interestingly about Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 is the Sabbath has two different thoughts to it. So in Exodus 20... We're commanded to honor the Sabbath. Why? Because it's a reflection back to when God created and rested. He says, just as God rested on the seventh day, so you too should rest on the seventh day. So therefore, there's a there's an idea that once a week you and I need to rest. Reflect God in our rest. But in Deuteronomy 5, it's a it talks about remembering. In Deuteronomy 5, the Sabbath says, honor the Sabbath by doing this, by remembering when you were slaves in Egypt and God brought you out and redeemed you. So the Sabbath is a day of rest and remembrance, a day of resting and worshiping. And I won't share too much of my view, but I would argue that in some sense we are always in the Sabbath. Every day is a Sabbath day for us. Why? Because we are always resting in Jesus. Somebody should have said amen right there. We are resting in Christ every day. But it's good for us to practice a day of Sabbath keeping. And so they're they're talking here about about Sabbath Sabbath. And they're saying, we're not going to do these things. We're not going to buy. We'd rather go hungry than not observe the Sabbath. Why do they do that? Because they want to commit themselves to prioritizing corporate worship. Now, let me stop right there. I said, commit yourselves to prioritizing corporate worship. Did I say come every time the doors are open? That is not what I said. I said, you need to make it a priority to come to corporate worship. So, for example, there are times you can't make it to worship, right? Let me give you an example. Um, If you're sick, please stay home. If you have the flu, don't bring that with you. Like, we're all about Christian generosity, except for when it comes to dirty germs. Stay home. There are times when you can't make it to worship, and that's okay. Maybe you're visiting family or you're out or you've got a work trip. Like we understand that. But the idea is not simply be here all the time. It's make a priority to be at corporate worship. Because what does corporate worship symbolize among many other things? Let me tell you what I think it symbolizes when we come together. When we come together, we come together physically, don't we? As bodies, you're sitting here with a body. Did you know that? Sometimes we take that for granted. If you need to pinch yourself, feel free to. But when we come together bodily, it's a visual representation of the gospel to the world. When we gather together to sing the gospel to each other and remember, when we, when we come together to worship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are coming together as a visible and physical representation of the gospel. Because what does the gospel call us to? A family. A family that's deeper than blood. Because it was built by the blood of the Lamb of God. 
We're a family. And don't you want to worship with brothers and sisters in Christ? I was arguing emphatic yes. It's an opportunity where we come together and from all walks of life, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you were born or where you weren't born. Or it doesn't matter any of that. What matters is that when we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we come together united in Christ. And that is a testimony to the world. So we commit ourselves to worship. But notice something here. It takes sacrifice. Uh, in fact, in verse in verse 11, uh, chapter 11, real quick, if you will, Nehemiah 11, we see these lists of a whole bunch of names from three all the way down to 36. But I just want to highlight on verses one through two. Here the people are repopulating and regathering in Jerusalem. Again, a physical and therefore a visible representation of the because of all this, what God has done and who he is. Verse 11, cha- chapter 11, verse one it says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten, one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. Verse two, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. God was repopulating his city. God was repopulating Jerusalem at the time with his people so that they would be a lighthouse to the world. They would be a reflection of his glory and what he's done in Israel. And through them. And then we get a whole list of names of people who come. But let me show you something about corporate worship. You see, corporate worship takes sacrifice. One out of ten had to move from their comforts of their own homes. That would be like Kyle coming in one day and saying, all right, uh, I'm going to go randomly and select one out of every ten of you to go plant a church in Belleville. And whoever's name comes up, you got to go. Talk about a sacrifice, right? Not only that, they in the in back to, to, to Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 31, not only back to that, look, they they might have to not eat. What if they didn't have food on the Sabbath stored up? Here comes these people, they're like, no, we're not gonna buy. We're gonna sacrifice our hunger not to buy from them. They had to sacrifice their their livelihoods, their money in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 31, when it says, and, and we're gonna forego the crops of the seventh year, and oh, by the way, we're gonna exact everybody's debt on the seventh year. We're gonna lose profit. What are, you, what are they showing us? That to prioritize corporate worship is a sacrifice. Let me give you three ways that you can sacrifice to make worship a priority. Number one, schedule it. Pretty easy. We schedule everything else in our lives, don't we? If my Google Calendar goes down, I'm in trouble. Everything is scheduled by the minute on my Google Calendar. Katie has access and she, she just puts things on there so I know what's going on in the family and I know when to beware. Schedule it. We schedule everything else in our lives. So schedule time to be at worship on Sundays. One of my friends, Baxter, he always likes to say, Sunday morning is a Saturday night decision. You got to choose on Saturday night if you plan to turn to church on Sunday morning. Get your clothes laid out. Go to bed early. Get ready to go for Sunday's activities. If you have children's, lay all, children, not children's. If you have children, lay, your, lay their stuff out. Be ready to go. So when Saturday night, you've made the decision in your mind to get to church. To gather with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And let me tell you something, parents. Listen. What you prioritize is what your children will prioritize. What you prioritize is what your children will prioritize. So make a sacrifice. Number three. Do you come expecting God to work? Sacrifice some of your day and your week to pray for God to do something on Sunday mornings. 
at Center Church. Speak to your life. Speak into an issue. Open your heart more openly to the gospel, whatever it is. But but do you pray and ask God throughout your work week, coming and expecting to show up and meet God on Sunday mornings? Sometimes I think we just kind of roll in. But, oh, yeah, it's time to get ready for God. But do we sacrifice even in our week to prepare ourselves for worship together with our brothers and sisters on Sundays? Number three. And this is take us to the rest of our chapter. Number three, we commit ourselves not only to live in the world, but not of the world. We commit ourselves not only to make worship a priority, but number three, we commit ourselves to be generous. We commit ourselves to generosity. In verses 32 down to 39, we see them talk about the tithing. We see them talk about giving to the house of God. Now, this is one of my favorite reasons for preaching through books of the Bible. Preaching through books of the Bible means you got to deal with the tithe. It means you got to deal with some hard issues. So, so understand, like, this was not like, oh, we need to figure out how to make more money. Like, if you think that, then you're wrong. Because we're just moving from, he ended in Nehemiah 9.37, and guess what? I picked up today in Nehemiah 9.38, and we're going to pick up next week in Nehemiah 12. When Kyle told me that they preached through books of the Bible, I said, where do I sign to sign up to be one of the pastors? This is the way I love preaching. So we've got to deal with the tithe. But here's what I want to caveat with. Are you ready? Listen, if you're a guest this morning, man, we're just glad you're here. We're glad you're here. We don't expect anything from you other than just you being here. I'm going to say, if you're a guest, like this message, you can hear it, but we're not expecting you to just be like, oh, I'm going to start tithing, all right? What we want from you as a guest is we want you to fill out a connection card so we can give you a pie. We want to be generous and give you a pie. That's all we're expecting from guests. But if you're a partner here, then one of two things is going to happen in this message. Either you're going to be encouraged or you might be stirred. The spirit might stir you in our understanding of generosity. And here's what I want to say. If, you, if you're a, a person who's been hurt by the church, some pastor out there who's done wrong, trying to fill their pockets and build their little kingdoms, let me tell you, I'm sorry for that. That is not what a minister of the gospel is supposed to do. And so if you struggle with that in your heart, then, then come talk to Pastor Kyle. Come talk to myself this week. and be like, this is a struggle that I have, and, and we'll help you to deal with it. But I want you to understand that generosity is a call of the Christian life for two reasons. Number one, because the gospel is all about generosity. Because of this, we give. Why? Well, do you not understand how the gospel shows us the generosity of God? God gave his son to pay for your sins. Our sin incurred a debt that we couldn't pay. It was death. Separation from God. That's, that's what our sin enacted. If you want to think of it about a, a spiritually financial enactment. Our sin caused us to die. And we can't pay to get our way out of it. You and I, we can't, we can't pay out of our sins. No amount of good you can do. God will be like, okay, I won't look at your sin anymore. So what did God have to do? God had to pay for our sins. And how did he do that? Well, he did it through his son. Jesus came to live the life that you and I couldn't live because of our sin. He died to death to pay for our sin. And he rose again to say, it's done. It's finished. That debt has been written off for everyone who believes in Jesus. 
You remember that old hymn we used to sing when we were young people in the, in the early churches? Jesus paid it all. Jesus didn't tithe his blood. He spilt it all for the sins of the world. And then what's the response in that hymn? All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. But he, he washed it white as. Amen. If you understand the gospel and how God has been generous to you through his son, then we respond because of this, God. Because of the gospel, I'm also going to be generous like you. So why are we generous? Well, in this text, we see reason number two. Not only is it because the gospel provokes our generosity, but, but the second reason is that we give to the local church we're a part of so that that local church can continue to equip and evangelize through us. I'm going to read verse 32 on down to verse 39. And I want you to see how many times, nine times to be specific, that you see the words house of our God. And when we get to the very end, when it says we will not neglect the house of our God, I want us all to read it together. Okay. Are you with me? Shake your head if you're with me. I see a couple of shakes. All right, so I got some people. Good. We also take on ourselves, verse 32 says, the obligation to give yearly a, a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. This is the reason that we're going to do this, they say. Verse 33, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burn offering, the Sabbath, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and... For all the work of the house of our God. Verse 34. We the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it where? Into the house of our God, according to our father's houses. At times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year. Where? To the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God. The firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priest, to the chambers of, you guessed it, the house of our God. And to bring to the Levites the tithes from our, our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor, and the priests, the sons of Aaron. Shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes where to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain and wine and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. And let's all read this together. We will not neglect the house of our God. So why do they give? They give to support the house of their God. Give their generosity to the house of their God, which is a representation of their place of worship. They give their time. They give their talents. And they give their treasures for the benefit of the kingdom of God. That's what we are as a local church. We give our times and our talents and our treasures to the local church that we serve and that serves us. Why? Because it is the local church that equips you 
to do the work of ministry out there. It equips you and your families to go out there and to evangelize the world with the truth and the beauty and the power and the goodness of the gospel. And so we fill, we fill our resources into the local church that we're a part of and that we partner with. Why? Because it's the local church that equips us, makes us disciples, and then every single week sends us out. So that not we can build our own little earthly kingdoms. It's so that we can magnify the name of Jesus and build the kingdom of God for the glory of God. Amen? That's why we give. That's why they give. Listen, there, there are ways in which you can give your time. There's ways that you can give your time. Some of you, you, you need to give your time by, by just getting here a little early to fellowship. Or maybe you need to give your time by being a part of an equip group or an MC or, or whatever the case may be. Or some of you, you, you need to be able to start giving your talents that the Lord has gifted every single person with a, a spiritual gift. And so whatever that gift is, use it. We've got places for you on the hospitality team. We've got places for you in, in the media area. I don't even know what we call it. The bullpen. (laughs) Laura has plenty of places for you in center kids. And we have lots of center kids. Yes. We have places for you in prayer. We have places for you as you can go and you can minister to the widows and the orphans. We have places where you can minister to the people in our schools. Like we have places. We're asking you to give yourselves for the advancement of the gospel. And then lastly, very easily, we give our tithes. We give our money to the church, our treasure. Not because we're trying to build a church, but because we're trying to advance the kingdom. And we do all of this under the umbrella of what? The gospel. We make these commitments just like they did in verse 38 because of who God is. And because of what he's done. So, how do you take a message like this and respond? I got three ways for you. Actually, I have five ways for you. Number one, do you believe in this Jesus that I've talked about? Do you believe and know the gospel? Do you know how much God loves you? He sent his son to die for you. He wants to draw you in today by his spirit. If, If your hands are starting to get sweaty and the hair on the back of your neck starting to stand up, that's, that's God prodding you in this moment to say, everything that Jeremy has said about my Jesus is true. Stirring the, the faith in your soul to respond this morning to the beauty and the truth of the gospel. I want you to not leave here not knowing this Jesus who has changed my life and will change your life. So if that's you this morning, I just want, after the service, come find me, come find Pastor Kyle. And say, I I believe what Jeremy has said is true. And I need to know what to do next. Number two, if you're a a partner in here with us or a soon-to-be partner, let me ask you a question. Does your life reflect the gospel in such a way that people notice? Are people coming up to you and being like, why why do you live like that? Why do you get up at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday to go to Center Church Brenham? Why do you live this way and work this way? Why do you talk that way? And they're really asking you, can you tell me about this Jesus that you love and serve? 
But if you're not getting those kind of questions, then the question you need to be asking yourself is, how come? Perhaps a better way to say that is the question you need to ask God is, how come people aren't seeing the change in me? Listen, I haven't had an opportunity to share my story, but one day I will. And I just want you to know that when I was in college, I was the prodigal son running from Jesus as fast and as hard as I could. When God called me out of sin, and then he called me into ministry, to this day, my college friends turn to each other and they say this. You know what they say? Can y'all believe that of all of us, Jeremy's the pastor? That's insane. And I said, yes, but that's my Jesus. Number two, maybe you need to prioritize worship in your own life in some capacity. And here's the way I want you to do that. Why don't you just go ahead right now and when I get done praying, pull out your phone and put on your calendar to be at Sunday, Center Church Brenham Sunday, next Sunday at 10 o'clock. And then go ahead and put on there that you're planning to be at Center Church to be part of the Good Friday service, 530 on Good Friday. And then put on your church to be a part, be on your calendar, a part of uh, the Center Church Brenham Fellowship and Easter celebration on, the, on April 17th at 10 a.m. And then be a part of the, the Easter egg hunt to follow. Why don't you go ahead and schedule that right now? And as a family, say, we're going to make a commitment to prioritize worship. Number three, the last way I want you to respond, and listen, if you're a guest, this doesn't apply to you. And if you have some type of conscientious objection, this doesn't apply to you either. But here's what I want you to do this morning. If if you're a partner here who says, I'm going to commit myself to generosity, this this is how I want you to go about doing that. After I pray, I want you to to come forward and I want you to partake in communion. As a time to remember what Christ has done for you. That he poured out his blood and his body was broken for your sin and my sin. And that's what he paid. And that's what he gave to save you and me so that we could be restored and renewed in Christ. And after you take communion, I want you to go back to your seat. And I want you to give as the Spirit leads. There's three ways you can do that. You can go back to the box and deliver your tithe as an act of worship. You can get on our, on our website. We're going to put the giving slide up here. And you can, you can use the QR code or you can go onto our website and you can give. And, and I want you as a family to say, we're going to, we're going to give our first fruits to you, God, because you gave everything for us. Now listen, do not feel, if you feel like I'm trying to pressure you, then please don't give. You allow the Spirit to work and move in you. But come to the table first. Partake in God's grace and communion and then go sit down and respond by saying, because of this, God, because of this, we want to give you this, the first fruits of our labors. Now, let me just confirm something about communion. This this is reserved only for believers. So if you're a believer in good standing with your church, please come to the table. And if you're not a believer, we're not trying to ostracize you or hurt your feelings for not coming or to call you out or point you out. Listen, we believe this is a very serious act of worship for the believer. And what we want to do is if you don't feel ready to come because you don't know if you're a believer or not, we want to talk to you this week. Kyle and I do. And we want to shower you with the gospel. We want to see the, the faith muscle start to be enacted by God. And then next week or maybe the week after or later, then we want you to come and partake as a brother or a sister in Christ. And then lastly, I want you to know that there's little pieces of bread in here. So either get the bread and take the, the cup or take the bread and dip it in the cup. And let me just tell you that, they're, that it's, it's red to symbolize the blood of Jesus, but it's grape juice. 
in both cups. Okay? It's grape juice in both cups. So come and take and then go and give. I'm going to pray. And then I want you to take two minutes to just respond to this message, how the Lord is calling you to respond. Based off of what I just gave you to respond to. Let's pray together. Father, your word is so powerful and good. And Lord, it speaks to the inner depths of our beings. That's why the the author of Hebrews says it's like a sword, a double-sided sword that pierces through bone and marrow. And so, Lord, you might be piercing hearts today. And I pray that these people would not delay in how you are prodding them in this moment of response. Give them the courage and the boldness to either stand and come to the table or to give or to calendar out right now their priority in worship or to say, Lord, look into my heart and tell me where I'm failing you because people just don't see Jesus in my life. And Lord, I just pray that you would have your way. Have your way in our lives for the glory of your name and the advancement of your kingdom. And I prayed these things in Jesus' name. Amen.